we get started, the first is um, youth. You are dismissed. Uh, sorry about that. Um, but Amanda's over there. Make your way over there. and You guys will have a great time this morning. Second thing is uh, uh, this. I wanted to give just a quick update. We um, are launching a new discovery group this coming week. And this is one of those things that we really love to celebrate, the, the creation of more space for people to connect in community, uh, the launching of new leaders. This is a really exciting thing for us. And in addition to all of that, this new group is going to be meeting on Wednesday nights, which is a need that we've had for a while. So if you have not gotten plugged into community yet, if you're not a part of a group, if Wednesday night would work for you, come talk to me. I'd love to get you more information about that group and help you get plugged in there. So what I wanted to do this morning before we got started was just take a moment to acknowledge that. I want to pray for that group as they uh, kind of go public this week. And then uh, I want to pray for us as we get ready to turn our attention to God's Word. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you are doing in and through Discovery, for the ways that you are showing up. Um... And, and leading us and, and caring for us and building us up. God, we are grateful for uh, a new group, for new leadership, for, again, space for people to be able to connect and, and grow together in community. God, we pray for them as they get started this week. I pray for that core group that's helping launch this, that you would bind them together in unity, that you would uh, grow their friendship uh, to one another, and that you would protect them as they step out and take this risk. And God, as they move forward and, and certainly face different challenges, I pray that you would give them a lot of grace uh, for one another as well. We also pray for those who are not a part of that community yet, but who will be in the next couple of weeks and months that you would be preparing them, that as they come and join there, they would find the good news of Jesus. They would find a space to, uh, to wrestle together with the deep truths of our faith, that they would see the intersections between who you are, what you've done for us, the gospel, and where you have them here uh, in Davis. God, I pray for all of us now as we turn our attention to your word, as we continue in this conversation where we've been looking at some of the deep truths of our faith. God, we've, we've said this many times. Would you continue to create a safe place? for us to wrestle with this truth, for us to voice our doubts and our questions. But would you also help us uh, to be just dangerous enough to actually do something about what we find, to be transformed by the good news of Jesus as we encounter it. This morning, God, as we come into a, a place like this, we bring with us worries, concerns, pain, uh, burdens of, of various kinds. I pray that for the next few moments you would hold those for us so that we can hear your voice and we can be receptive to your word and what you want to say to us today and so that we would be able then to respond in the ways that we need uh, to respond. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus and everybody said, amen. All right, well, for better or for worse, a defining mark in many of our lives is the sports teams that we root for. Okay, there's something about the teams that we like that, that it says something about us, right? And, and I would argue that there is, you know, if you love lots of sports and follow multiple teams, I would argue that there's actually one team that you have a defining relationship with, one sort of fan team relationship that lies under all the other ones. For me, this is the San Francisco Giants, okay? There we go, a few, a few of us here. 
today. That's great. <laughs> it's been a rough couple of years, but uh, some good stuff before that. Uh, anyway, I, I love basketball. I love the Warriors. I have this on-again, off-again, love-hate relationship with the 49ers. Um, but the Giants are, are, are really my first love. Okay? And I can tell you about just about any moment in my life from 1985 to the very present. And I can tell you about what I was doing in that moment. And I can connect it to what was happening with the Giants at that point in time. I can tell you about the night that Barry Bonds broke the single season home run record. I was hiking Half Dome with my friends. And I can tell you about in 2012 as the Giants were headed towards their second World Series. We were living in Boston at the time. My daughter Marina had just been born. And our downstairs neighbors... Right in the middle of the National League Championship Series, which the Giants were very behind in at one point, decided it's time to paint their living room. And, and in doing so, they somehow figured out how to disconnect our cable. So we had no Wi-Fi and we had no TV for the rest of that series. And I had to like go out late at night to, to watch the games and sports bars. I tried to find it on the radio, whatever it took to be able to follow that series. This is the kind of relationship that I have with the Giants, all right? And again, some of us, those of you who are sports fans, you probably know what I'm talking about. But the thing that's so weird about this, about having an allegiance to a team like this, is it just, it just doesn't make any sense. All right? This absurdity is pointed out for us brilliantly by the comedian Jerry Seinfeld. So watch this clip with me here for just a second. Loyalty to any one sports team is pretty hard to justify. Because the players are always changing, the team can move to another city. You're actually rooting for the clothes when you get right down to it. You know what I mean? You are standing and cheering and yelling for your clothes to beat the clothes from another city. <laughs> Fans will be so in love with a player, but if he goes to another team, they boo him. This is the same human being in a different shirt. They hate him now. Boo! Different shirt! Boo! He, ma he makes a good point, right? Like, <laughs> why do we care so much about this stuff? Now, there's a whole other level of absurdity to fandom, and, and it's this. This might hurt some of your feelings, but, but just bear with me for a moment, okay? That team does not care about you as much as you care about them, okay? Some of you are like, no, they care about me. What are you saying? But it's true, no one from the Giants has ever written me a note saying, oh, Steve, we're so grateful for all the ways that you've been following us for the last 30 years. You know, what are your thoughts about who we should sign in free agency? <laughs> That's never happened. It should happen because I have some great ideas, but it's never happened. Okay, sports fans are uh, we're loyally uh, to the point of being irrational, right? The, the commitment we make to these teams, and we give our hearts to this thing that more often than not will disappoint us and has no interest in loving us back. And, and this is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but this is actually one of the ways that I've come to understand God. <laughs> In Scripture, one of the most common metaphors used to speak of God's relationship to us is that <clears throat> of marriage. And today we're looking at, at, at the book of Hosea. Hosea uses this metaphor all throughout the book. Here's just one example. God says to his people, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. 
Now, if you really think about it, this is a weird picture. Why would God talk about marrying his people? And, and maybe this is a picture or a metaphor that made sense several thousand years ago, but in our day and age, when, when the majority of marriages end in divorce, when we are more loyal to our sports teams than we are to our spouses, this is a foolish metaphor, right? Doesn't this seem out of touch with where we are as a culture? And it raises a whole bunch of questions for us. Why would God align himself with unreliable people? Does it reflect negatively on God that he is faithful to us despite all the ways that we are unfaithful to him? Is God naive or foolish to keep coming back over and over again only to be disappointed like a Dodgers fan? (laughs) I had to do that. I had to do that. This is what we are calling, on a serious note, this is what we are calling the Hosea Paradox, the God who is faithful to the unfaithful. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Hosea. If you have no idea where that is, not a problem, okay? We can figure this out together. (laughs) Hosea is about two-thirds of the way through your Bibles. It comes right after the book of Daniel. It is yet another one of the minor prophets, and we've been looking at a couple of these over the last Uh, two or three weeks. Remember last Sunday we talked about how minor doesn't mean inferior. It just means the size and scope of the book is is more narrow and focused. Um, By the way, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers would love to come around and make sure you have one. All right, Hosea 1.1. It begins in this very classic formulation for a prophetic message. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea Son of Biri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This was the southern kingdom. The kingdom had split into two parts. And during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, the northern kingdom at that time. Now again, if you were here last Sunday, we were looking at this this prophet Habakkuk, the, the dialogue that he has back and forth with God. We learned that that book was written during a dangerous and tumultuous time, the northern kingdom of Israel had been exiled. They'd been conquered and, and taken off to a foreign land. And the southern kingdom of Judah w- was still hanging on, but, but they, were, uh, they were becoming very nervous about this rising superpower called Babylon. And in fact, we learned that God was going to use that superpower to pass judgment on his people. Hosea, however, written several generations before this. There's still two kingdoms, that, again, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And he is speaking particularly to this northern kingdom of Israel. And this is during a time in Israel's story where, where things are going relatively well. This is a, a season, an era of ease and prosperity. It turns out that this season of ease and prosperity is just as dangerous in so many ways as the time that Habakkuk was a prophet. Everything looked really good. The people were safe. The economy was booming. They were obviously doing something right. During these times when things are going fairly well, whether individually or communally, there's this temptation to relax in in the worst sense of the word. Complacency sets in, bad habits form, and we can easily ignore any warning signs because, again, everything looks fine. Everything looks so good from the outside. For 
me and, and my wife Amy, we've had these uh, seasons where uh, both of us have been working. We've been a two-income family. One of the things that we've recognized during those seasons is that it becomes very easy for us to uh, become undisciplined in our budgeting. And, and we, you know, we'd cut some corners, we'd justify different purchases. And then we'd have this, this really hard adjustment whenever we would go back to being a one-income family. All those bad habits that had set in were suddenly, we were suddenly confronted with. And in a very similar way, in a very serious way, the same thing is happening in this moment for Israel. Their luxury had led them to ignore the poor and the needy in their community. They began to turn inward in this season of self-centered hedonism. And most importantly, they started to reject their first love. And they've begun worshiping this false god named Baal. So Hosea has the, the really difficult prophetic job of, of telling a well-off people who have everything going for them in this situation where everything looks really good, telling them, actually, it's not as good as you think it is. It's much easier to be a prophet, at, you know, in a time when things are difficult, right, and everything's kind of going off the rails. People are going to listen to you then, right? Help us. But in this time of prosperity, a very difficult task for a prophet. For being honest, though, Hosea's context is a lot like ours. Whether you think about this from, from a national or a state or, or certainly a Davis viewpoint, things here look really good. Cute little town, good schools, nice neighborhoods, brilliant, well-educated people. Must be doing something right here. So what God does is God sends us prophets like Hosea to force us to look underneath the surface of all the stuff that looks so good. To ask them hard questions. What's really going on here? What are we really pursuing? What are we actually being formed by? Who do we really trust and rely on? When things are going relatively well, when everything looks good, sometimes we need to be shocked to get us out of that complacency. This is exactly what God does through Hosea. Look at the next couple of verses. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So Hosea married Gomer, daughter, uh, daughter of Diblim. What we see here in the first couple of chapters of Hosea, Hosea 1, 1, 2, and 3, is that Hosea's life is the message. His life is this piece of performance art intended to confront Israel's unfaithfulness. And so again, the first couple of chapters of this book unpack this crazy scenario. Homer, or, or sorry, Hosea marries Gomer, a prostitute. And they have three kids, and the kids are included in the message that Hosea is, is communicating. Okay, their first child is named Jezreel, and this is a, a prophetic name for the time in the future when the kingdom of Israel will end. Pretty ominous name for your firstborn child, right? The second is Lo-Rahama, which means not loved. And the third, Lo-Ami, which means not my people. 
this is pretty crazy, right? Hosea's whole life, his whole family is speaking this message to Israel, communicating to them that your relationship with God is broken. Everything looks good on the surface, but underneath that, it's rotten. And so judgment is coming. The kingdom will end. You will no longer be God's beloved people. In the midst of all this, we get this interesting insight into God's side of the story. We've talked a lot in this conversation over the past several weeks about our emotional life and how we can bring all of that to God. God's not put off at all by the emotions that we feel. But here we see that God also feels. One example of this from chapter 2. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. God feels betrayed. He feels the pain of our unfaithfulness. You see that God has a heart that breaks too. Now after their marriage, Gomer continues to prostitute herself. And you might think that God would say, you know, Hosea, it's time to move on. Feel, feel free to, to let that go and, and go find something else for yourself. But actually what he does is he encourages Hosea to go after her. At the beginning of chapter 3, the Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Now the sacred raisin cake sounds kind of yummy, right? Like, ooh, what is that? <laughs> But that, this is a, another indicator of the ways that they've gotten caught up in these, in these false, these alternative religious practices. Hosea is told to go after her the way that God loves the Israelites. Now again, all of this has this sort of ominous feel that, that even though God loves them and God pursues them, they still turn his back on him and so there's going to be repercussions for that, but this is not the end of the story. God says that at some point in the future, there will be restoration. Names will be changed. Transformation will happen. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So Hosea's life communicates the message of what has gone wrong and what is going to happen in Israel's future. And then having grabbed their attention through this, uh, again, through this life that he's living, Hosea then spends the rest of the book, chapter 4 on, unpacking, highlighting all the ways that Israel has been unfaithful to God and the consequences for that unfaithfulness. But at the very end, there's a little bit of hope. Okay, There's this final invitation to repent. Return, Israel. To the Lord your God, your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us gracious, graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Now, in some ways, the Hosea paradox is the flip side of the Joshua paradox. You guys remember this one from a couple of weeks ago? The terribly compassionate God. The God who is patient with us but will punish evil. How does this fit with that? Why does God let them come back? Why does he give them an opportunity for restoration? Why does God keep investing in this dysfunctional relationship? Does God have boundary issues? 
And then maybe this angle of questions uh, is going through your mind. Why does God pick such a lousy nation? Couldn't he have picked people who could do this better than Israel? Who would be more faithful than they were? Here we encounter one of the great mysterious truths of our faith, and it's this. God puts himself and his heart on the line. God takes risks. And one way that God does this is by habitually choosing the wrong people. God doesn't ignore this risk. In fact, it's his deliberate policy. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. You can't pick Israel because they were the best or the brightest or the most numerous or the return on investment was going to be the greatest. He picked them because he loved them. He loved them because he loved them. Now this, this theme, the, the, this tension of the faithful God and our unfaithfulness of God choosing the wrong people, it gets pulled to the surface during Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus, like Hosea, ran headlong into a group of people who thought that they had it all together. When Jesus arrives on the scene, the people of Israel are still scattered and oppressed. They're now ruled by another empire called Rome. And yet there had been this return to their land. And they sort of resettled there and kind of got it into a nice little rhythm. And there was this hope, there was this very present hope that the restoration of the kingdom... That, that prophets like Hosea and Habakkuk talked about, that it was not that far off. The religious leadership at that time, particularly a group called the Pharisees, had this very specific, narrow vision for how the kingdom of Israel would be restored. And their vision involved following rules to the very uh, specific letter of the law. Their goal was to achieve this level of purity. If we can just do the rules really, really well, if you can just get super pure, God will come back, he'll restore the kingdom, and we will be blessed. And in all honesty, the Pharisees were really good at this. They, from the outside, they looked like they were doing everything right. Their strategy is, again, very similar to things that we say today. Go to the right schools, live in the right neighborhood, Get accepted into the right program, enact the right policies, and, and everything will be great. But in addition to that, they also had, there was also this part of it. In order to do this, in order to achieve this level of purity and rightness, we've got to keep all the bad people out. Anyone who messes with our purity and our awesome little club, keep them out. And then along comes this guy named Jesus who just totally turns that upside down. In Luke chapter 5, we read, There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them, them being Jesus and his disciples. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This tension keeps building. All throughout Jesus' life and ministry in every gospel, we see this tension building, and it really comes to a head in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bible still in front of you, flip over to Luke chapter 15. We're going to spend the rest of our time over there. It begins like this. The tax collectors and sinners 
We're all drawing near to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Again, for the Pharisees, this is all wrong. In their worldview, this doesn't compute. It doesn't add up. It's upside down, backwards, irrational. And in particular, they would have been thinking about it through their, the, the lens of, we've done everything right. And, and these people have done everything wrong. Why are you spending time with them? We've followed the rules. These people have, have broken the rules, blatantly broken the rules in many ways. We've earned the right to be at that table with you. They have not earned anything. And so to confront this attitude, Jesus, like Hosea, uses an illustration, uses a piece of art to get their attention. In this case, he tells three stories. The first is a story about sheep. The second is a story about coins. Both stories follow a very similar pattern. Someone has a good amount of a possession, 100 sheep, 10 silver coins, and then loses one of them. And so the owner of those things goes on this all-out search to find the lost thing. Now, this seems kind of reasonable to us, right? If you lose something, you want to find it. None of us like to lose things. But what's interesting about these stories is that in going to look for the lost thing, the rest of the things are put in jeopardy. The shepherd leaves 99 sheep behind. The woman uses all of her resources to find this one coin. And to the original audience, and I think maybe even more so to us, this all-out search seems unreasonable. It's just one sheep. What if when you're out looking for the one sheep, someone comes and steals 10 of your sheep? How's that better? What if instead of spending your whole day looking for that coin, you, you, you pick up an extra shift at work? Or you sell something, make that money back. There, it seems like there might be some better options. But clearly, these things are important to the owners. And they're so important, in fact, that when those lost things are found, there's this repeated refrain, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, my coin that was lost. And then there's a party. And Jesus, in both of these first two stories, gives us this real nice, neat, uh, moral ending. There will be more joy in heaven, he says, over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Have you ever wondered what God really cares about? What brings God the most joy? It's lost things being found. It's being reunited with his unfaithful people. And God cares about it so much that he's, he's willing to be risky. He's willing to be a bit reckless in how he conducts the search. Now, after those two stories, there's a third story. And, and we're not going to read through this, but again, follow along with me in, in your Bibles. There's a similar pattern here in this third story. There's a lost thing. There's a search. And then there's a joyful reunion and party when the lost thing is found. But there are some significant twists in this story. This is a classic teaching technique of that day to tell three stories. Two are kind of very similar and then the third one has some changes to it to help highlight the point that the teacher is trying to communicate. So let's look at the twists. 
First twist. This third story is about a person. The other stories are about possessions, about things. This one is about a person, in particular, a son. Second twist. This son leaves willfully. He gets lost by his own decisions. Unlike the sheep and the coin, the son leaves on his own, and he leaves with a tood. Tells his dad off. Tells his family off. He's willful, offensive, rude, openly rebellious. Third twist, there's a search, but this search is a much different texture than in the first two stories. Again, in those first two stories, we see the owner of the lost thing going to these great, reckless lengths to find what was lost. But in this third story, you get the sense that, that the father of the son is waiting, is looking, is anticipating his son returning, but he doesn't go after him. Fourth twist, this story ends ambiguously. There's no nice, neat, tidy ending to this one the way that there was in those first two stories. And then finally, the last twist, there's another character in this story. There's a second son, and we get to hear from the second son, the older brother. The 99 sheep, the nine coins, they don't get a voice, but in this story, the older son speaks. And what we see, particularly through this older son character, there's a reason why this story has some different texture, why the search in particular feels differently. It's because the one who is supposed to go looking doesn't do the searching. And this is not some sort of like secret hidden message in the story. The Pharisees, as they listened, they would have picked up on this immediately. They would have been surprised by the recklessness of the shepherd, the determination of the woman with the coin. They would have been disgusted by the younger son's behavior. They would have been scandalized by the graciousness of the father to welcome his younger son back. But they also would have wondered, what's wrong with the older son? Why doesn't he go after his brother? That's what he was supposed to be doing. You see that ambiguous ending to the story is Jesus saying, you guys are the older brother. You should be seeking these lost brothers that I'm having dinner with. You should be here at this party with me, celebrating that we are all here together, eating together, celebrating together. But you're grumbling and complaining. Now, the gift of the story of the two sons and the story of Hosea is that we, can, that we see very clearly there are multiple ways that we can be lost. There are multiple ways that we can be unfaithful to God. Some of that lostness is obvious. We, we, we wander far from home, we rebel, we squander like that younger son. I just want to say, if you resonate with that character, with that story, I'm so glad that you are here. We want this to be a church for you. But some lostness can be much harder to see. And so again, prophets like Hosea, the parables that Jesus tell, they have this way of getting below the surface to see what is really going on here. And I want to quickly just point out three ways that we can get lost like the older brother. Okay, the first is through appearances. The pursuit of a perfect-looking, beautiful, Instagrammable life will pull you away from the very people that Jesus is with. 
Jesus tells us where we can find him. He'll be with the sick, the hungry, the naked, the immigrant, the incarcerated. You see, when Jesus is hanging out with these notorious sinners, with the tax collectors, with these other folks, this is not some sort of diversion from from his teaching or a distraction from his healing. This is why he came. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so if you have some older brother tendencies, the invitation of the Hosea paradox of the parable of the sons is to let our lives be a little bit messy. To ask the question, are we willing to join Jesus in those messy places? Second, we get older brother lost when we rely on our performance. In particular, I think of the words of the older brother, look at all that I've done. We start to get into this adding of of all of our accomplishments. Look at all the places I serve. Look at all the books that I've read. Look at all the people that I'm helping. That's classic older brother thinking. It's the trap the Pharisees fall into. And Jesus says, that is just a dead end. Stop performing. Come in, join the party. And then finally, we get older brother lost when we rely on a system. If you thought I was going to use an A word, didn't you? But I did not. This to me is one of the most pernicious problems in the church today. And I mean that broadly speaking. But, but this idea that there is a perfect system for doing church, for being a follower of Jesus. And if we just did that with this right approach to scripture, to worship, to groups, to mission, then everything would be perfect. And what happens for us a lot is when we get hooked by the system, we get frustrated when the thing that we're a part of doesn't look like that system. And so we pout or we sit on the sidelines because this thing, it's not biblical enough. It's not missional enough. It's not worshipful enough. It's not whatever the thing is enough. But this is why we keep saying over and over again, we want to be a church for people who are in process, not people who are finished products. When we start to think that we are finished products, that we've got this whole thing figured out, that is when we have fallen into the trap of the older brother. That's when we know we've gotten lost. So again, the invitation of the Hosea paradox, the story of the two lost sons, is to admit to confess the ways that we get lost. To say, man, I have wandered way off. I'm a million miles from home. Or to say, you know what, I'm stuck in this system. Trying to look a certain way, trying to perform a certain role. Either way, we're lost. But the good news is, either way, God is still faithful to us. He says, everything that he has is ours. So come home. Join the party. Drop the appearance. Stop relying on your performance. Quit the system. Which leads us to one final truth about the story of the two sons. Part of what Jesus is saying is, I am your true older brother. 
people, we were all lost, every single one of us. It was Jesus who went looking for us, who's done the work to bring us back to the family, back to the party, back to the Father. Through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. His faithfulness to pursue us is what saves us in our unfaithfulness. And that is good news for all of us, whether we are younger brothers or older brothers, whatever kind of loss we might be. You see, the Hosea paradox is actually less of a paradox. It's more of just a gospel truth. God is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful. Even though it makes zero sense and it seems reckless and risky. And so the question for us this morning is simply, are you lost? How have you gotten lost? Will you accept the invitation to come home and join the party because the Father is waiting for you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the the truth that we encounter in the Hosea story. The ways that you are faithful to us in all of our unfaithfulness. Thank you for Jesus who is the fulfillment of the promise that you made even in Hosea's time. That there would be a possibility for reconciliation and restoration. And so... Father, this morning we just pray very simply for those of us who are here this morning who are lost like the younger brother. We have wandered so far from home. Thank you for the good news that Jesus is our older brother who seeks us out, who finds us, who brings us back. And God, for those of us who are here this morning who have older brother tendencies, we're trying to look really good, we're trying to work really hard. We have this idea, this system in mind of of what it's supposed to be. You free us from all of that. And and simply say, hey, come in, join the party, join the search. So I I pray now, God, for for all of us in this room that we take some time, examine our hearts, figure out which ways that we can get lost, that we would repent of those things, and that we would enjoy your grace and your love, the gift of Jesus his death and resurrection that we might be brought back to your family. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.